We'll go ahead and have a seat. So last week, we kicked off a series called How to Win at Life. And part of that has to do with, you know, at the new year, people make New Year's resolutions, they make goals, they have words for the year, and maybe you're one of those people, you're just super excited about your word for the year, you're so excited about your goals. But some of us, because we're two weeks into the year now, now here's the reality. The reality is that two weeks into the year, they say 23% of the people who set resolutions, who set goals, who set words for the year have already given up and are just waiting for 2025. Okay, so a quarter of you. So if you have set something, and if you haven't given up yet, then you are part of the 75% overachievers, right? But wait, there's more. At the end of the month, half of the people who have set resolutions and goals will be done with them. Now, why is that? Part of that has to do with the fact that we're not very good when things get hard. We don't do very well when things get difficult. And so as we look at this idea of how to win at life, We're using the book of 2 Timothy because 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. It's just a personal letter that he wrote to Timothy. And Paul is sitting in a jail cell facing death. It's the last book of the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote roughly two-thirds of the New Testament. He has planted churches all over the known world at this point. And he sits down... And one of his last things in life is to write to Timothy, the person that he has raised up in the faith, the person that he has mentored to say, these are the things that I think you need to know. And he writes them and he says at the end of chapter four that the whole goal of this letter is so that Timothy can run his race, can finish the the faith, can stay steadfast. But what's interesting is what Paul writes about in these letters, in this letter. You would think that if someone were going to write down a list of like top 10 things of like how to win at life, they would probably not include how to handle difficult relationships. But the reality is, is that you and I will not get to the end of our lives without walking through difficult relationships. It is impossible for you to be any age any life stage, and not have experienced relational scars and wounds. It's impossible. It's even more impossible to be a follower of Jesus for any length of time and not have somebody within the Christian community or within the church hurt you. And you would think, well, that shouldn't be. And you're right, but here's Paul sitting in a jail cell, and he says, Timothy, one of the things you have to navigate is how you handle when people hurt you. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, this also extends to how do you help your kids handle when people hurt them? Especially, and this is so important because especially in our culture now today, there's so many people who are deconstructing their faith because of things that have happened within church circles. How do you handle relationships that hurt and not lose your faith? See, it's not just about whether or not you can like stay human and like not have anger and bitterness. It is, can you cling to your faith when people who should know better don't? And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, and I want you to imagine this, okay? Because I want you to imagine receiving a letter or like a last word from somebody who you deeply care about. And this is what Paul, this is the relationship that Paul and Timothy have where Paul is almost pulling Timothy in and just saying, hey, let me, let me tell you, you will have people hurt you. And it will sting, and it will leave a mark 
There will be things said about you that you wish you could undo. There will be things that you say that you wish you could go back and undo. There will be conversations that you will never, ever forget. And we know this is true. I mean, think about some of the most hurtful things that have ever been said to you. There's a good chance that there was something hurtful said to you maybe as far back as you can remember. Five years old, six years old, eight years old. Maybe you had a parent or a grandparent just say, I'm so disappointed in you. Maybe you've had somebody who just gave you the silent treatment. See, there are conversations that have, had, that have been had with us that you have never forgotten. And there are people that you and I are holding on to and we are making everybody around us pay for what that person said and did. See, this is not just, well, how do I be a good friend? But this is how do I handle when life just punches me in the gut and it's really hard to stand back up. And here he is sitting in a jail cell. And it's, and it's fascinating to me that as Paul is sitting in a jail cell and he could say anything to Timothy, he could write anything to Timothy, he spends 11 verses on relational discord, on relational pain. And he tells Timothy when it happens. He doesn't say if it will happen. See, one of the things we have to wrap our minds around is that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, they say again and again, when difficulty comes, when trouble comes. Jesus tells his his disciples in John 16, he says, you will have trouble. And then what happens? When trouble hits us, we're like, what? Like, why, why, Jesus, I thought this was supposed to be easy. Well, Jesus says, when trouble, trouble comes, and we're like, it's got to be for somebody else. It's probably for the person sitting next to me. So when trouble comes to you, no, Jesus says, when trouble comes. And Paul says, Timothy, this is what's important. You and I cannot run the race that God has for us unless we learn how to deal with relational hurt. If we don't learn how to deal with relational hurt, if we don't learn how to deal with the people who hurt us, we will not experience what God has for us. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. That we will not experience all that God has for us in our life if we cannot handle the difficulties that come our way. You cannot handle it. If you cannot learn to deal with it. Now, this is, this is, a very, this is very much a learned muscle. Okay? This is, now you may think, well, I don't want to learn how to do this. I, I really don't want to. But here's, here's what happens in relationships is that when they get difficult, when we get to the crossroads of difficult relationships, many of us hop off the ride. But here's the thing. When we try to hop off the ride, have you noticed that you don't ever actually get off the ride? Have you noticed that that relationship still has a way of kind of showing up. Like, think about, think about when you left a job, okay? You left a company. Why did you leave the company? Because you had the dumbest boss possible. You had Dilbert's boss. Like, he was just, you couldn't, like, you couldn't even fathom how, how your boss just could not 
do things correctly. You go to a new company and you're like, this is going to be amazing. And then what happens? You've somehow found the second dumbest boss on the planet. Now, why is that? Doesn't have anything to do, it, it, ironically, doesn't have anything to do with your boss. It has to do with you. Just like in marriage. If you're married, you're probably thinking, you know what? The biggest problem in my marriage is my spouse. That's the biggest problem in my marriage. Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with your spouse. There's a good chance that like 50% of the problem is your spouse. But there's also a really good chance that the biggest problem in your marriage might be you. Friendships? I'm sure each one of us has a friend that you're like, you know what? The party would have been better if that person hadn't shown up. Friendships are difficult. It's hard to navigate them. But one of the things we see throughout Scripture is that you and I will never get to the places that God wants us to be without pain, adversity, and difficulty. The brother of Jesus, James, starts off his letter and says that the only way to be mature, complete, and lacking nothing is what? Pain and adversity and difficulty. And then... Here's what happens when pain, adversity, and difficulty comes. We're like, well, I must have sinned. Well, maybe. But maybe you are in that place because God wants to bring you to a place of maturity, completeness, and lacking nothing. And the only way to get there is hurt. I remember this came home to me years and years ago. I was maybe 23, 24 at the time. And I'd applied for a job, and so we're sitting there. Katie and I are sitting with the search team. It was a student pastor role at, the, at a larger church outside of uh, Washington, D.C., and I was so excited. I thought, man, they're going to hire me. I'm, I have everything they want. Like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm who they need. And we're sitting there, and it was, like, it was like a long interview. It was like three hours long. And finally, the lead pastor hadn't really said anything the whole time. And finally, you know, the search team chairman said, hey, does anybody have any Final questions. And the lead pastor said, hey, I have one. He said, Josh, what, what's your deepest relational hurt? And I was like, and, and because like one of, one of my struggles is I, I don't really like being vulnerable. I really don't like opening myself up. And so I, at, at this point in my life, I had not dealt with any of my story really. And so I, I gave a really lame answer. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Josh, he said, I'm not sure that that's it. And he said, and I have a hard time trusting a leader who can't name their deepest hurt and tell me how they've wrestled through it. And I didn't get the job. And I've never forgotten that. Because what that pastor was trying to give me a lesson in is that the only place the only way to get to all the things that God has for us is going to be on the hardest relational path we could take. You cannot find one person in Scripture that that is not true of. Start all the way back in Genesis. Every single person that God uses greatly experiences betrayal, abandonment, people trying to kill them, people trying to ruin them, lying about them. 
And then here's what we do with relationships. The moment that it gets hard, we go, well, this obviously can't be God's will. And we're surprised when it gets difficult. We're surprised when we get the difficult child that won't become a new child by Friday. And we're like, what did I do wrong? Well, no, 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 you, you didn't do anything wrong. Because here's the thing, and this is what I don't want you to miss, and this is so important of where we're going today. Difficulty doesn't mean you aren't winning at life. It just means you're living life. Okay? Difficulty doesn't mean you aren't winning at life. Difficulty doesn't mean that your faith is in the wrong spot. Difficulty doesn't mean that your marriage, your friendships, your community, your career, difficulty doesn't mean you aren't winning at life. It just means you're winning life. Difficulty, like I've said, and I don't want to, I'm really trying to emphasize this because I don't want us to miss the reality that difficulty in our faith journeys is just a normal part of the faith journey. And Paul tells Timothy this. We looked at this last week. He says in verse 7, he says, Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. See, this is the spirit of fear that he's talking about is really like the encapsulation of everything. A spirit of fear is one where we make decisions based off of fear, when we make decisions or decide things, or I'm going to take this path because I'm afraid to go the other path. And and we do this with relationships. How many times have you felt afraid to engage in a relationship because of something that happened in a past relationship? How many times have you said, you know what, like the the last time I opened up in a small group, it didn't go well, so I'm not doing it ever again. You know, we, we do this with the people closest to us. Well, the last time I shared what I thought, you told me that was a dumb idea, so I'm not sharing with you ever again. Now, there is some wisdom. We do need to have wisdom with the people that we share with. There are some people that we should not share things with, okay? There are people in your life that are not safe people, okay? That, that is a reality. So that's a, that's a wisdom piece. But we also need to not close ourselves off because we're afraid. We can't close ourselves off to relationships with each other and with God because of something that has happened in our past. Because the only person that pays that price is you. Did you know that? When you don't open up to somebody because of hurt you have in the past, the person who hurt you does not lose any sleep. You do. And that's what's so frustrating about relationships. Have you noticed that? The people who hurt us the most, they don't seem to be bothered at all. And you cannot fall asleep because of that person. And so Paul says, because then we have a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. He says in verse 8, so don't be ashamed. And that word so is, is really a continuation. He says, so because we have the spirit of power, love, and sound judgment, we don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel. Okay? So Paul says, the gospel and the suffering, following Jesus and suffering, go together. I don't know what somebody told you when you took that step of following Jesus, but one of the things we see in every single New Testament letter is suffering and following Jesus are connected. Difficulty 
in our faith journey is to be expected. So he says, don't be ashamed. Instead, share in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Now, what does suffering do? Suffering has a way of stripping away at all of our pretenses. Suffering has a way of taking away everything that we look to for security, for safety, for identity. Suffering has a way of of taking all that away to say, okay, can you really count on anything but God? So it says, share in the suffering, relying on the power of God. And so what suffering does, suffering will bring us to the place where we will make the choice of will I rely on the power of God or not? And when you meet people who have walked through excruciating suffering and unbelievable betrayal or or just walk through things, you just think, how is it that they are even functioning? And you say, how are you putting one foot in front of the other? How have you dealt with all of this loss? How have you been able to do this? And they say, I'm just holding on to God. And you go, well, that sounds so cliche. So like, what else do you know? Like, what, what else are you doing? I'm just clinging to God. I'm holding on to God. Yeah, but like for real though, like what are you really doing? And Paul says, in the jail cell. He's in a jail cell because people have betrayed him into the jail cell. And he says, share in the suffering, Timothy, and rely on the power of God. Why? Because he saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So he saved us and called us with a holy calling. What does that calling include? Suffering. It includes suffering. Verses 8 to 12 is just one long sentence. Okay? So when he says suffer for the gospel, rely on the power of God, it's because he saved us. He saved us and his calling includes difficulty. So the moment that you think, okay, well, I'm in a difficult space. Obviously, I'm outside of the will of God. No. There's a good chance you are in the center of the will of God. I mean, the greatest evidence of that is the cross. Here is Jesus dying for the sins of the world, in the center of the will of God, suffering and dying. I don't think he hung up there and was like, man, I hope I'm in the center of the will of God. No, he was in the center of the will of God. And we have this idea, and we say this all the time in Christian circles, the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Yes, that is a safe place to be, but it doesn't mean that it won't hurt. Okay? And so he says, you have been saved to suffer. Now, that, you might think, that's not a really great tagline for Christianity, Josh. Saved to suffer. But why? In that, we show the power of God to the watching world around us. Because if you look at our culture, our culture has no idea what to do with relational hurt. Think about it. If everybody everybody is born good, okay? If everybody is born good and there's no sin in the world, who gets to decide that your relational hurt is actual real hurt? And and when we say, well, you just have to learn to forgive yourself, okay. But then what do I do do with the person who lied to me? What do I do with the spouse that cheated on me? What do I do with the kid that said absolutely horrific things? What do I do with the person who betrayed me? 
See, one of the most powerful evidences of the gospel is how you and I don't get bitter and we learn to forgive. And he says in verse 10, he says, this, is, this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And when the Bible speaks about death, it speaks about it in three different ways. It talks about the physical death, it talks about a spiritual death, an eternal death. And he says, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has abolished death. And he says, for this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher. And that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed. So he says it again. I'm not ashamed. That's twice he said it. So that's important. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know that he will guard. Guard what? Guard the gospel, guard the good work that Jesus did in me, and guard me. Now, would I love for you to get to the end of your life and have no relational hurt? Yes. I would love for that. But the Bible doesn't promise that. What it does promise is that we will not go to a place, we will not enter a relationship where God will not guard us. Now, does that mean that God has caused everything that has happened in all of your relationships? No. Does that mean that God has caused that deepest hurt? No, that does not mean that God has caused that. But what it does mean is that it has to pass through the hand of God to get to you. Which means that when it got to you, God was not caught off guard and he saw it coming and didn't leave you. Here's Paul sitting in a jail cell and he says, I'm guarded by God. And you're like, I don't know, Paul, like you're, you're in a jail cell. Are you sure? He's like, I've been guarded by God. I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. He says, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And he says, hold on, in verse 13, he says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. See, when Paul says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching, this was a huge theme in 1 Timothy. It's a big theme in 2 Timothy. And when he says sound teaching, that word sound is the same Greek word that the gospels use when people are talked about when Jesus heals them, okay? So he says, hold on to the healing teaching. See, this is really important. See, the gospel is not just how I am made right with God. The gospel is not just how you and I get to heaven and don't spend eternity in hell. The gospel is also how Jesus heals us and makes us whole. And so he says, Hold on to the healing teaching. So the gospel has the power to heal the deepest scars that you carry. The gospel has the power to heal the deepest wounds that you're not sure what to do with. He says, hold on to these words. Guard these words. Guard the gospel because they will heal you when everybody else leaves you. And we might think, man, that's kind of, that's like a lot, Paul. Look at what he says in verse 15. This is one of the most astounding sentences in the entire Bible. 
He says, you know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me. Okay, so Asia's a big province. We're talking thousands of people. And here is Paul. He says, they all deserted me. And you may feel this. You may feel like I have been deserted by everybody. My family has deserted me. I've been left. Everybody, like, I I don't have any community. Everybody, I am all alone. Paul says, everyone has deserted me. And then, he's like, including Phygelus and Hermonges. Now, there's really very little that we know about these two people in history, except for the fact that they did something bad enough and bold enough to Paul that he was like, you know what? Not only did everyone desert me, but then these two guys. But I want you to feel this. I want you to feel because you and I, if we were to unload on a friend and said, everyone deserted me, I want you to feel the pain. Here is Paul in this jail cell saying to Timothy, everyone deserted me, Timothy. Everybody that I went to serve, everybody that I loved, everybody that I cared about, I went there and preached the gospel to them. I sacrificed for them and they left. And and we get from, from Paul's life, first and second Corinthians, which is basically Paul saying, guys, what is even wrong with you? I mean, this church that is just so just messed up. I want you to feel because for many of us, this is exactly where you are right now. You feel alone, you feel abandoned, you feel left, you have been lied to, stabbed in the back by somebody, betrayed, and you're like, I am alone. And Paul says, this is is where I am, Timothy. He says, I am alone. And I think it's important I love that that Paul wrote this to Timothy. I love that the Holy Spirit preserved it for us because it is okay for you and I to come to somebody close to us, to come to God and say, God, they all left and it's not fair. They deserted me. They hurt me. My spouse walked out on me. My kids don't care about me. My parents were destructive to me. It is okay for you to name that. But then, here's what happens though, is that we get stuck there. Too many of us just get stuck there. And then he says in verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtain mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Then he names just one person. Because this is so, 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 so important. Okay, I don't want you to miss this. He says, don't miss the person that God sends to you to refresh you. Because in your relational desert, when you feel alone... It is easy to miss the people that God brings into our lives who are there to pick us up. Because we want to stay angry. We want to be bitter. 
And we want everybody around us to be mad with us. And we want the people closest to us to be like, yeah, you know, they, they should get what's coming to them. No, that's not refreshing. That's not refreshing when someone shows up and is like, yeah, you deserve to be bitter. That's right, post it all over Facebook. That's not refreshing at all for anybody. No, what is refreshing? Refreshing is somebody coming and saying, hey, Paul, I know what it feels like. And you're, you're not alone. And, and God didn't leave you. And I'll be here to pray with you. I'll be here to pray for you. And I'll be here to pray for them when you don't want to pray for them. I'll, I'll hold your arms up in faith for you when you don't have faith to muster for it. That's what refreshment is. Refreshment is sitting in silence with a friend who's grieving and not solving it. But our problem is, is that we are so focused on the people who deserted us and naming the names that we miss the one person that God sends in to say, I'm here to pick you up. And it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss that person. But here's what's amazing. Whenever the disciples came to Jesus and asked him about forgiving other people who hurt them, What's interesting is that Jesus always said two things in the Gospels to them. He always said, if someone sinned against you. So he always wants us to stop and ask, did this person sin against me or did they just do something I didn't like? Did this person actually sin or did they just kind of push my preference to the side? But then, before he says anything about forgiveness, he says, Watch yourself. Why? Well, because our first inclination is revenge. Our first inclination is to withhold forgiveness. Our first inclination is bitterness and resentment. But Jesus says, watch yourself. Guard your heart. And then... Only then does he say, and now you forgive as you have been forgiven. You forgive 70 times 7. So he doesn't say, well, just muster it up. No, he says, okay, ask. And then make sure that you're not returning fire with fire. Make sure that you, in your anger, don't sin. And Paul says to Timothy, because I want you to imagine this. Here's Paul. He's, he's later in life. He's on the verge of, of his death. Timothy's in his 20s. And in your 20s, you think, man, like, I can get through any relational scar. I'll show them. I have so much life left. I can show them that I'm going I'm to amount to something. And Paul says, Timothy, you have lots of gusto and energy, but you are going to get relationally hurt. And when it happens, don't be surprised. But also when it happens, and this is what we need to hear today, when it happens, don't lose faith. Cling to the power of God and watch for the person that God is sending you to refresh you. Now, that sounds way easier said than actually living it. And I had mentioned the Next Step email 
And one of the things in the, the email this week is just a few questions and a few promises from God about relational hurt. But as we close and take communion, here's how I want us to process communion. There's three questions that are going to come up on the screen. And this is how I want us to prepare our hearts for taking communion. Because when Paul says to Timothy, he says, I'm able to get through this because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because he abolished death. Because the power of God saved me. Because the power of God is able to get me through this. But I think there's a few questions that, that are good for us to ask. One, do you need to confess any wrong you've done against someone? Have you wronged somebody? Have you deserted somebody? The next one, do you need to release someone who has hurt you to God? Do you need to just release them? Do you need, like Paul, to name them? Like not on Facebook, like not, you don't need to like shout out their name at your small group and say, this is the person. But do you need to release them? And to a trusted friend. To say, I need, I need to, I'm done, I'm done. This person's taking up way too much real estate in my heart. And do you need to ask God to keep your eyes open and your heart open to the person he is sending you to refresh you? I think for me, this is one of the hardest ones because I want so badly to get justice and revenge in some relationships that I miss the person that God is sending to me to get me out of that place. But notice, Paul says, the way we get through relational hurt is we cling to the power of God. We cling to it. I mean, and that, that's, not like, that's not like a, I, I'm hoping to hold on. No, clinging, I mean, you, that's dear life. That's hanging on to the side of the cliff and saying, I'm not gonna let go. That's the, that's the child you're trying to get into the pool and they're like, no, I'm not gonna swim. Like, and they're just clinging. That's how hard, that's what it takes to get through relational hurt. We cling to the power of God. We name the hurt that we've experienced and then we open our eyes to the person that God sends to us. And so I wanna invite you to take a moment. Whatever these three questions bring to mind, to just bring those to God in this place. We'll have them up on the screen and I want you to just take a moment just to read through them pray through them. And when you're ready, after just taking a moment just right here, you can take communion. This is, this is part of our practice of clinging to God each week. As we take the bread, we take the juice, and we say, this is what saved me. It's the power that saved me. It's the power to hold me. And every week when we take communion, we, we remind ourselves, God, I need your help and we need his help with, with our relationships. And then after a moment, our team's just gonna lead us in a closing song.